Okay, mm, welcome to Cream of Caroline, the most lit casserole lifestyle podcast in America. I'm your host, Caroline Hatchett. Now, are you like me? Do you like to uh, have a little bottle of wine open while you cook dinner? You know, so you can add a splash to your meal as you go. Well, we've done one better on the cream today. We are pouring rum into our lives and into our baked dishes. Rum distiller Bridget Fertile of Oni's Rums joins me for lunch and to talk about what it takes to make premium booze and grow a small business in New York City. We'll introduce you to her roster of rums, give you spec for her ultimate daiquiri, and wrap with a rum-soaked meal. It's going to be creamy. What's in the oven? Rum. Rum is in the oven today. We are going to turn to page 72 of the 1983 Southern Living Annual Recipes Cookbook, or of course, you can follow along on Instagram. It is rum-laced bean bake from Mrs. Roger Williams of Arden, North Carolina. Now, I am not a lover of the sweet, sticky baked beans. This is mustard-based and much more my style. So, Cook one pound of dried navy beans. Any white bean will do with a half pound of salt pork, a bay leaf, and one onion studded with two cloves. Pour some salt in that pot. Cook them till tender. Drain, reserving two and a quarter cups of the liquid. You're going to throw out the onions and the spices. Keep that pork, obviously, and dice it up. With that reserved bean liquid, you're going to whisk in a pretty hefty portion of dried mustard. Right before you're ready to pop it in the oven, layer half of the beans in a deep casserole dish. Cover with the pork, more chopped ham, onions, and garlic. Put the remaining beans on top, drizzle in that mustardy bean liquid, and bake at 350 for one hour. After that, you're going to pour in technically a quarter cup, I, you know, I really think you could go crazy here, of rum over the top, bake 45 minutes more. And this was you know, a fairly veggie-centric meal for us. Obviously, there was some meat. I also did cherry tomatoes with rum. Yes, found on page 192. That comes from Pat Boshin of Ashland, Virginia. For that, I combined two tablespoons rum, one teaspoon sugar, half teaspoon salt, and a quarter teaspoon pepper. Stirred that together until fairly dissolved. And then in a pie dish, combined one pint cherry tomatoes, three tablespoons melted butter, olive oil would probably work here too, uh, and then drizzled that rum spice mixture over the top. Finished it with three tablespoons of chopped parsley. Bake that for about 15 minutes until the tomatoes are just ready to burst uh, at 300 degrees. And that recipe was so good, I made it twice uh, with the end of my farmer's market tomatoes. And that's what's in the oven. Casseroles in the news. Editor John Reed of the Jeff Davis Ledger in Hazelhurst, Georgia, has put out an all call for your favorite Southern casseroles. Reed is a bit of a foodie and has traveled to all 50 states to eat, but he says there are no better cooks on earth than Southern church ladies. To send him your favorite casserole recipe or remembrance, just email jcreed57 at gmail.com. Christ Lutheran Church in Lake Mills, Wisconsin will host its annual 
all-you-can-eat German dinner on Wednesday, November 6th from 4 to 7 p.m. On the menu, roast pork, schnitzel, spetzel, Bavarian sauerkraut, potato roasty, German potato salad, craft beer, naturally, specialty hors d'oeuvres, and green bean casserole. A little-known fact, not invented by Germans. Pastor Aaron Borsch, though, welcomes all. He says, if you take pride in your German heritage, or even if you don't, join us for a delicious night out for one of the most exciting events of the year. You are sure to leave satisfied. And finally, as if anyone cared, it is Sweet Potato Awareness Month. And that's your casseroles in the news. Hello, we have Bridget Fertile in the house today. She is the founder and distiller at Oni's Rum, a New York rum brand. Welcome. Oh, thanks so much. It's great to be here. I was inspired to do this episode. One, um, I've wanted to meet you for a long time. Jeff Harding, one of my dear friends, has carried your rum, and I'm a big fan. But in this Southern Living cookbook that I'm using, there were two recipes, one for baked beans with rum, and then a kind of strange one for baked tomatoes with rum. Cool. So Awesome. So we're cooking with Oni's today, and I thought that that would be a nice excuse. Yeah, I love it. To bring you into the fold. So you are, you're a ride-or-die New Yorker. Yes. And you grew up in Queens. Yes. Born in Brooklyn, raised in Queens, went to school in Manhattan. I love all the boroughs. Okay. <sighs> so, but I was, you know, doing some research and you had a speakeasy in your basement growing up? Yeah. So my parents, both sides of my family are from South Brooklyn. My parents got married and moved to Rockaway Beach, Queens, which is one little bridge over Jamaica Bay into a peninsula that's technically Queens, but right over uh, from Brooklyn. And I uh, grew up in a really old house right on the ocean there wow. okay. in Rockway Beach. And when I was, I guess, somewhere between the age of 8 and 12, the uh, older people on the block had told my parents, hey, you know the bar in your basement? Yeah, that was a speakeasy back in the day. And of course, it makes total sense. There's a side door entrance, and it's a beautiful old bar, and one of the selling points for actually acquiring the house, and it's cool that it has a lot of history as well. Okay, that's really kind of ridiculous. (laughs) It really is. Did your parents throw amazing parties? Were they entertainers? Yes, Yes. Uh, still are. I've followed in their footsteps a little bit. (laughs) Um, The bar was, you know, inspiration for a lot of the naming and branding that we kind of decided on with uh, the rum. Okay. And um, a lot of the you know, inspiration not only for making rum, but so much rum was drank during Prohibition, mm. came from the Atlantic Ocean, Run, uh, rum was run uh, right through kind of my hometown and uh, distributed to speakeasies throughout uh, all of New York City and the Eastern Seaboard. So kind of, you know, again, was the inspiration for a lot of um, my so, thought, right, not, creative thoughts with so, Oni's. So not somebody just like looking into a history book and finding the history of rum in New York. And it's kind of, it's really a part of who you are. Yeah, yeah. Inadvertently, I right, kind of... randomly. Yeah, I had this dream to bring rum distilling back to New York and to make rum, American rum specifically. And um, that was kind of a dream that came out of working at a hedge fund as an analyst in the consumer staples sector with a focus on global alcoholic beverages. So I have that vision. And then as I'm kind of working through that thought process, 
trying to decide how I'm going to get creative with it and where the inspiration for the name is going to come from and how we're going to package it and market it and all of these things and can't help but come back to my childhood home and the speakeasy there and that kind of led to Oni Madden and rum running and so tell me who is Oni Madden yeah so Oni Madden was a um, immigrant from Ireland he was actually born in Leeds England he came over to New York as a five or six year old child uh, his family settled in what is now known as Hell's Kitchen on the west side at the turn of the century. He was one of a number of children. Unfortunately, the father had passed away you know, when he was a child, and it's the turn of the century on the west side of uh, New York City, and there are a lot of gangs, and he observes this, and it seems to be a way to make money. So he joins a gang that was known as the Gopher Gang, a kind of silly name, but a notoriously violent gang. And he's very ambitious, let's say. He makes his way, you know, all the way up the ranks there as a teenager. And, I mean, there are a million stories about him. But the one that leads to where I get inspired by him was uh, he was shot 13 times, I believe, in 1911. And uh, miraculously comes out of the hospital about five days later, survives 13 bullet wounds in you know the 1910s right which is pretty inspiring in itself and um not so shockingly uh five members of the rival gang go missing a few days later after he gets out of the hospital and he gets finally gets convicted of something i think he was arrested 65 times or something and only convicted once winds up doing a stint in jail for about seven or eight years and during that time in jail he becomes a little bit more mature less rambunctious more calculating and strategic and he gets out of jail and it's prohibition and he's like wow there is a tremendous amount of opportunity here in business (laughs) and so he actually buys the cotton club up in harlem and he starts bootlegging and then most endearing to me he starts running rum Mm -hmm. and um he had an estate in rockaway beach queens which uh, as i said is where i'm from peninsula on the southernmost tip of long island but it's queens and uh he starts smuggling in rum from the caribbean through rockaway and distributing it to his speakeasies his friends speakeasies other distributors that are going to take it you know south uh, across the east coast that way And essentially the term rum running was basically ships would come up uh, full of rum from the Caribbean, drop anchor at what was known as Rum Row, which was 12 miles offshore in international waters, so they wouldn't get in trouble. And uh, fishermen hired by gangsters or gangsters themselves would take their boats out to Rum Row, fill them up with rum and smuggle them into uh, New York Harbor. Yeah, exactly. So he was just a badass New Yorker responsible <laughs> for a lot of rum drinking. So I'm like, rum hustler, New Yorker, business, opportunity, entrepreneurism. Yeah, let's do it. Right. No no murder associated yeah. with modern day only. No, no, yeah. no, no. I'm a very peaceful, happy, <laughs> nonviolent person. <laughs> uh, so you're working finance. Um, I mean, I can just imagine all of the bros. Your official title was, what was it? Global Alcoholic Beverage Analyst, right? At some point. (laughs) That sounds so badass. (laughs) I was like, if I have to do this finance job, I'm going to make it fun for myself. So uh, I wound up developing a niche in that sector so I could kind of stay connected to. I had worked in food and bev throughout school and, um, you know, 
to pay the bills and things like that. And uh, was just kind of drawn. I like to eat and drink. I like mm-hmm. to go to restaurants. I like to follow trends in, in what people are doing in that sector. So it naturally fit once the fund manager was excited about the opportunity to invest in booze. I was like, okay, cool. This is what I'm going to specialize in. It took a few years to get there. But yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, it was it, Finance was... I, it comes naturally to me, to be honest. I'm really good at numbers. I knew kind of immediately within business school that that's what I was drawn to. I like Excel spreadsheets mm-hmm. and I like kind of valuations and the economy and all of that stuff. But um, it really didn't feel so tangible to me over time. Buying and selling stocks and making money it was great, but I kind of lost any sort of sort of maybe authenticity isn't the right word but just um I don't know I couldn't really feel it so I went to something that was totally the opposite of that where it's like you're making something with your hands and you are selling it door to door and enjoying it with people it's not as esoteric as managing money for a hedge fund yeah and so tell me about that leap that very when you were in a very comfortable place and Uh, became an entrepreneur yeah a business owner yeah I think about it a lot you know in retrospect seven or eight years later at this point and I had kind of reached a ceiling so to speak where I was at the fund I was a junior partner there wasn't much room to kind of advance um you know, forward at the fund I was working at and I was soul searching and I was thinking about getting into venture capital because I really like small business and startups and the excitement of that and investing in private companies. And, you know, over the first six months of 2011, I was like, "Mm, I might be going from the frying pan into the fire. This doesn't feel necessarily right. I kind of always knew I wanted to own my own business. I come from a long line of uh, small business owners on both sides of my family. And um, I thought it would be in finance. I thought I would run my own financial firm. But because of my experience in investing in uh, the beverage industry, I had watched what was happening in craft spirits and the resurgence of the American distiller that was starting in on the West Coast here in the mm-hmm. U.S. And, and moving east, and in my opinion, being driven by changing legislation on a state-by-state level that was kind of easing laws from prohibition um, mixed with a new consumer that was looking for different brands with transparency that were made differently with a good story looking to discover things outside Mm -hmm. of you know let's say in my sector Bacardi and um, I just was getting really excited about that just from a passionate perspective personal and as I was venture capital, soul searching. I was like, "Mm." (laughs) all of these things sort of came together in my head. I also thought rum was being neglected in this American distilling movement. And I thought that there was an opportunity to change perception around the rum category, how it was made, how it's made, how to use it, how to drink it, how to sell it. And came to a conclusion at my desk in June of 2011. I was supposed to be doing my job, but I was really watching a TED Talk being given by a professor at Stanford who was telling Stanford MBAs not to get into venture capital without having run their own business. Mm -hmm. What gives you any credibility to judge somebody else's business plan and make investment decisions on their you know, vision when you've never even been in their shoes. So get out there, don't be afraid to fail, like make the jump. And I'm sitting there like, okay, I'm in my mid to late 20s. I can bet everything I've made 
so far, move in with my parents, back to Queens, get out of my loft in Tribeca and just like take a, take a swing at the ball. So that day I basically started writing a business plan to execute this vision to bring rum distilling back to New York. How long did you spend on your business plan? <laughs> it went really fast. Really? I was so fired up. I was so excited and I was so driven by this, what I believe to be a real opportunity uh, to do this, to execute this business. So uh, I guess in combination with planning the, you know, writing the business plan, planning the pitch deck to try and get investment, holding on to a paycheck for as long as possible. It took the back half of 2011 to finally say my goodbyes to, to the fund. So I guess about six months when all was said and done. And I haven't looked at my business plan, my original business plan in a really long time, but one of these days I'll get the stomach to do it. It is probably very far from what has actually <laughs> happened in the past eight years. And I know that's kind of textbook what a lot of entrepreneurs say is it deviates so much, but it'd be really entertaining to look back on what I originally thought I was doing. <laughs> You know, one of the things that I love most about rum as a category, and I was stalking your Instagram feed this week <laughs> in preparation, and you said that it's made for those people who like to make their own rules. Uh, you can do anything with rum. Yes. Other than Martinique, where there are AOCs, uh, and there are even experimental people, you know, in Martinique making agricole, but you really, it, like, it's just wide open. Yes. And that is one of the things that excites me the most about it. And then from a, you know, if I put my business person cap on, it is also one of the biggest challenges. So rum is made in, I don't know, 90 plus countries in the world in a variety of different ways. And the only universal worldwide definition on how to make rum is that it comes from some form of the sugarcane plant. Generally, molasses, 90 plus percent of all rum is made from molasses, which is a byproduct of sugar refining the remaining percentage from fresh pressed sugarcane juice. And there's so much awesome, delicious rum available around the world. And in the U.S., unfortunately, 70-ish percent of the market is dominated by a couple of commercially produced rums. And that's maybe one, two, three, four rums that what that is what most consumers think rum is and that other 25 maybe 30 percent of the market is filled with all this awesome other delicious rum there's just a little bit of lack of education and a lack of resources and marketing dollars marketing and sales dollars with those smaller independent country uh, companies from yeah. around the world to help kind of facilitate bridge the gap so to speak between you know uh, rum and Coke and tea punch. Uh, so let's talk about your rum. Um, yes. I, I've had it in cocktails. I haven't just like taken a whiff of a bottle or like it neat a mm. until I bought a bottle for this episode. And it has a, it has a lot of character for a white rum. Yeah. 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 And that was, so <clears throat> to be clear, I'll, I'll talk specifically. I believe I saw you have the original here, which is mm -hmm. awesome. We have three, make three rums, mm -hmm. um, the original, the overproof, and then our newest, which is a blend of the original and a two year aged rum from the Dominican Republic that we've imported. Everything starts with the same base. So I'll talk about that production process, which leads to all the funk and cool character and high ester content you've 
smelt and tasted mm-hmm. with the original. So um, it's made only from three ingredients, uh, all natural, um, non-GMO, fresh sugarcane, uh, grade A sugarcane molasses that comes from Florida and Louisiana, good old filtered New York City tap water, mm-hmm. and a proprietary yeast strain. And uh, all three of those things contribute to the flavor. So there are three main buckets that make Oni's original different. The ingredients, the way we ferment those ingredients, and then the way we distill those ingredients. So I think pretty much everything with the ingredients was self-explanatory. Maybe aside from grade A sugarcane molasses. And essentially that means we've pressed the cane and boiled and uh, pressurized it enough that it becomes shelf stable for six months to get as close to fresh pressed sugarcane juice as possible. A lot of my inspiration for crafting this rum came from um, agricole style, from fresh pressed sugarcane, and from high ester content Jamaican rum. So I like to say that this is kind of my interpretation of a combination of the two of them. So that's kind of the the reason for the type of uh, molasses we've sourced. It's also 100% USA grown, which I thought was important. Uh, I'm a native New Yorker, as we touched upon. I obviously think New York City tap water is the best in the world, (laughs) uh, but that's probably for a whole other podcast, but pizza bagels and now rum. And uh, I'll talk about the proprietary yeast in terms of fermentation. So essentially, we take those three ingredients and we ferment them for a long, cold fermentation. How long? Uh, At least six days, typically six to nine days. And this is unique for rum. Most rum is probably fermented for 48 to maybe 72 hours at over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. We temperature control our tanks. So we keep them at 75 degrees for at least six days, again, maybe six to nine days. And essentially what we're trying to produce during the fermentation is a process called esterification. So during the first few days, uh, the yeast are eating up all the sugar and the molasses. They're producing alcohol and carbon dioxide and energy. And then during the back half of the day of the fermentation, we're actually producing esters in a process called esterification, and that's based on temperature, length of time, and our yeast strain. It's essentially when an organic acid combines with an alcohol molecule. Okay, and that's like your specific yeast strain can also thrive in lower temperatures, I assume. We're we're essentially, yes, we're essentially stressing out our yeast for, uh, you know, all intents and purposes. So we get them to create a lot of alcohol in the first couple of days of the fermentation. Mm -hmm. And one of the ironic things about yeast is that they can die from alcohol poisoning. So one of the defense mechanisms, their intention isn't to create alcohol. It's a byproduct of them growing, eating sugar, and reproducing. And alcohol just happens to be something they create in that process. So when there gets to be too much alcohol in a solution, they start producing a ton of organic acids as a defense mechanism against alcohol poisoning. So they put a lot of acid into the into the solution. In theory, it keeps the alcohol molecules away from them. Um, what actually winds up happening, if you do everything correctly, is the uh, acids combine with the alcohol molecules and form esters in a covalent bond, like good old high school chemistry. (laughs) And you can make 300 to 500 different types of esters, and each one of those esters has a specific flavor and aroma profile. So again, in theory, if you know your yeast strain, you can get get it to produce a certain amount of alcohol molecules, ethanol, methanol, butanol, propanol, and a certain amount of organic acids, and you can force them to combine. You can manipulate a flavor profile during fermentation. And I think that's why a lot of distillers talk about the importance of yeast in fermentation leading to flavor. 
Um, it was one of the biggest, it's probably our biggest, you know, part of our ethos uh, from a production standpoint. I think a lot of distilleries um, neglect the power deliberately of fermentation because they're just trying to get as much alcohol out of the process as possible to get to just a neutral ethanol molecule when they distill or they distill and use a barrel and they get 80 to 90 percent of the flavor from the barrel or they add things back to the liquid after distillation so we kind of flip that all on its head and say we're not going to add anything back we just want to manipulate these really high quality ingredients Mm -hmm. to create a lot of natural flavor and then the last part of the process is we distill that so we um, distill that fermented wash um, on a batch by batch basis in a pot column hybrid still Okay. It's 265 gallons, so it's got a traditional oh, pot wow. and then a six bubble um, cap plated column. And we distill to what's considered a low rectification distillation. So we distill to about uh, 82% alcohol by volume or 164 proof. And basically at that level, we find that it um, rectifies the spirit enough. So it's filtered, again, not my favorite term, but it's smooth. Again, not my favorite term enough for an unaged product, but it retains a lot of the flavor of the fermentation and the ingredients. So most white rum distilled probably at 96% alcohol by volume, which is essentially neutral ethanol or as close to neutral ethanol as you can get um, without distilling in a vacuum. Sorry, okay. I could talk about a lot of the science <laughs> forever and I kind of black out while it's happening. No, but that, so like... How did you educate yourself, though? How did you learn the science? Yeah, so I, you know, again, business MBA 101, starting a business, know what you're good at, know what you're not good at, and like hire people to support what you're not good at. So originally, original business plan, oh, I'll hire a distiller, sure, like that's cool, I can do that. Actually trying to do that was really difficult. Uh, there, we don't educate people in brewing and distillation in mass in this country anymore. It's changing now that, that we have new industry to support grads coming out. So you mm-hmm. can't really go like recruit on a college campus. Uh, any actual distiller working in Kentucky, for instance, or abroad isn't really... I couldn't really afford them, nor are they like, yeah, I'm going to jump ship for my awesome Maker's Mark job and go make rum with this crazy woman in Brooklyn. Okay, cool. So I learned quickly that I was going to have to figure it out by myself, but I was also okay with that because 90 plus percent of craft distillers had never distilled anything before. So I was like, hey, if they can do it, so can I. And so I just read as much as I could while I was so let's say June of 2011, I started writing my business plan and started reading about making spirits. Uh, we didn't complete construction until August of 2012, so um, a year and change I spent reading as much as possible on the internet, in books, visiting distilleries, drinking rum, <laughs> tasting rums, and figuring out what made each one unique and what, what I really wanted to create. And then from August of 2012 to about October, I spent playing around in the distillery. Okay. 
Yeah. Wow, that's scary. <laughs> yeah. You know, again, I wasn't really thinking about what I was doing. I was just kind of going. I had blinders on. In retrospect, the whole thing was crazy. I, I'm trained and educated in finance. I'm good at that. Right. Um, okay, now I'm going to get into the liquor industry, which I really know nothing about from an actual operational perspective. I know about evaluating companies from a financial perspective and making investments, and I'm good at that. But now I'm going to go build a distillery and make rum I've never done any of that before and then hopefully make something that other people like originally I was just like okay I'm gonna make something I like and then like hopefully somebody else likes it too I don't really know how to test I couldn't consume you know do focus groups or anything at that at right, that size of course. so yes the whole thing was nutty still is uh but you know you just kind of keep going you're so driven by again the vision and the opportunity and you're excited and you just you know even at the lowest points, you, you, you're like, okay, this is it. Like, I'm done. I'm going to walk away from this, go back and get a, get a job on Wall Street. Some, like, little positive thing winds up happening when you're at your lowest and you're like, okay, shoot that energy, like, all through your body and just, like, keep, keep swinging. So. Yeah, well, like, what was a low for you? Oh, God. <laughs> Everything, you know, not everything. That's silly, but you know, okay. Now I have a pro. I have, I've built a distillery in in New York, which is a challenge in itself as a young woman dealing with contractors, dealing with the city, dealing with architects, getting all of that stuff approved. I figured out how to make something that I like. I put it in a bottle, and now I'm like, oh, okay. I made a lot of this. I'm paying the rent every month. I'm paying money to make the product. I have to sell this okay, I have no real relationships in this industry on an operational perspective. So knocking on doors, you know, getting, getting, you know, the door shut in my face a lot. Uh, thankfully, pretty soon, you know, after doing that, I realized some of the important tastemakers really liked the rum. So I was like, okay, that's cool. That's a positive. I started getting some good press because I had a couple of friends that wrote blog you know wrote blogs that got picked up by larger publications which was great um but still even all of that positivity there i mean again we could spend a whole podcast talking about why it's so hard for a small independent company in the liquor industry just because of the way to distribute and the laws and the regulations and each state is kind of like its own country so navigating all of that without a big budget um, is just very challenging and paying the bills, you know, paying for a distillery, just the nut on the distillery to keep it going and then trying to figure out how to manage your working, working capital, which is just funny to me as someone who sat, used to sit next to like the CEO of Heineken as a young 20 something asking him what his working capital is like. I'm surprised the guy didn't slap (laughs) slap my head right off me like you have no idea what you're talking about now I really understand what working capital is and how to take cash make product build inventory and then quickly as quickly as possible turn that inventory back into cash so you can repurchase ingredients to do the whole thing over again anyway there's just a lot of business involved with it but I guess the lowest parts were like you know struggling to pay the bills uh and, and and I think that's the kind of the long and short of it so I want to jump back to the rums. Yes. High proof. Yes. Or overproof, rather. Exactly. So everything, just to reiterate, everything starts with the process I just described. So that 164 proof distillate that comes off the still from that, you know, those ingredients and that fermentation 
gets diluted down with uh, filtered New York City tap water to 80 proof or 40% ABV for the original. That same 164 proof distillate gets blended back down with filtered New York City tap water to 130 or 60, uh, 130 proof or 65% alcohol by volume for the overproof. And then our most recent product, which was launched last year, is actually um, a Caribbean American blend. We are sourcing a rum from the Dominican Republic that's made from fresh pressed sugarcane juice. So like aguardiente, right? I guess, I guess, yeah. It's uh, aged for two years in ex-bourbon barrels. And we import that at cast strength. So we import it at 140 proof. We blend that with our 164 proof, still proof Onis. And then we blend that blend back down to uh, 80 proof or 40% ABV with filtered New York City tap water. And that kind of was inspired by a number of things, Oni Madden, and also my interest in paying homage to the Caribbean, which has been so influential in rum production, my love of fresh pressed juice rums, wanting to incre- uh, incorporate some aged flavor quickly. Um, you know, all of those things kind of played into into the the launch of that product just to kind of uh, not reiterate to expand upon the only Madden factor one of the big practices of of rum runners again getting back to the history was when they smuggled in that rum from the caribbean they would cut it with stuff that they made here locally to extend the reserve so hey you get a bunch of precious age reserves typically from havana uh you know you can double your inventory by blending it with locally distilled products so but not quite as nice locally distilled product exactly. as Oni's. <laughs> we like to we like to think of this as a much pr- more you know premium blend than than they were blending during prohibition. And unfortunately, we couldn't get Cuban rum, which was typically the rum of choice during that time. But we believe we have the next best thing in this awesome, magical rum distillery in the DR, where it's like an open air distillery on acres and acres of fresh sugar cane. It's just like heaven there. Yeah. So, I mean, that to me is, and I'm still learning about rum. I'm, I'm a little rum obsessed, uh, but I encountered a blend of, you know, molasses made rum and mixed with agricole. There's like a Mexican producer and I'm terrible and I can never remember their name. Okay. And that, but not aged agricole. Okay. And so yours is only the second that I've seen, but I had no idea that there was like a real history behind it. Yeah, I, again, there are so many rums around the world. I don't claim at all to know them all, but that's cool. I didn't know that. I will look up that producer that you just mentioned. At the time, at least conceptually, when we were, you know, preparing to launch this new product, I believed it to be the only of its kind, the only sort of American, definitely the only New York City Dominican blend. I can say that for a fact. At the time, I also thought it was the only American Caribbean blend. Subsequently, I have come across a couple of American Caribbean blends, but um, totally different styles. Okay. Now, are you aging anything? Uh, We have a couple of barrels aging. I hope that this new product that we're now distributing nationally can hopefully bring in some more money to bring in some more space to be able to expand upon our barrel aging program. Okay. Not only is it money, right? Like you have to buy the ingredients, make the rum, put it in a barrel and sit on it for however long you want to, in my opinion, at least two years. 
Um, you also need the space for it. And so... Which we talked about. Yeah, yeah. Space is not something that's so available in New York City. So, you know, we're getting there, hopefully. Okay. <laughs> Are there other kinds of rum that you're just like itching to make or experiment with? I would like to build upon what we're what what we're doing, you know, over time. I think it would be super cool. We have the original. We love that. We have that recipe down. That would be the feedstock for everything going forward. So, original overproof this particular, you know, Caribbean or uh, Caribbean Dominican uh, New York blend. Who knows? Maybe there is a New York Jamaican blend or a New York um, Bayesian blend. Mm-hmm. And we kind of like pay homage to all the different types of really cool styles. And also uh, New Yorkers. For- yeah, exactly. Totally. Totally. I love, especially in the beginning when I was really hands on doing all the tastings and liquor stores throughout the boroughs, you know, there are so many people from the Caribbean in New York and it would always be, you know, they'd kind of always roll their eyes with me like a rum from New York. Yeah, rum from New York. Actually, rum was the first spirit we made here. Super important to our history. First distilled on present day Staten Island in the 1660s. And I'd give them the whole spiel and they'd kind of warm up to me and I'd be like, and I make it. So now you have to try it. I kind of back them into a corner. And it'd be so cool because they'd try it and obviously love it. Um, But we'd always get into conversation about um, how much pride they have from for the rums that come from the islands that they're, you know, either family is from or they've immigrated from. So that's really cool. And I hope over time we can develop that kind of pride for New Yorkers as well. And I always turn them on to like supporting Onis as well because they live in New York now too. So You just need to be a sponsor for the Dominican Parade. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I'll put that on the list. <laughs> so, you know, and... Obviously, rum education is not only like important to you, uh, but necessary for your business. How how's the category evolved since you got started? That's a great question. The first, again, back to knocking on doors, begging bar managers and beverage directors and buyers to taste the rum and hear the story. And oftentimes, throughout those conversations, the inevitable question would be, so when's the whiskey coming out? And I'd be like, no, no, no. I'm making rum. That's my dream. That's the point of this business. That's what I'm sticking to. I want to do at least one thing right and expand upon that. And I'm happy to say over the past two to three years, I've been getting the opposite reception or not necessarily opposite. Oh, cool. Awesome. A rum. Not another blah, 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 blah. I don't want to poo-poo the other categories. I love all drinks. So, but it's really, it's really been awesome to say, like, have that reception. Oh, tell me about this rum. I want to learn more. Tell me how it's made. And you can tell that the trade is super excited about rum and uh, inquisitive and educating themselves and putting more rum cocktails on menus. And they're behind it and they're getting there. And so hopefully that inevitably translates to the consumer over time. I know that consumers have to be drinking more than just a rum and coke because rum is being featured on the best menus in the world and consumers are trusting the people developing those venues to tell them what's good and 
they're telling them rum's good in a lot of cases. So hopefully that just continues to build. Right. And rum can so easily be subbed into drinks in a home bar. It's yeah. like a gin and tonic can become a rum and tonic. Yes. Rum old fashioned. There are millions. Yes. A, you know, daiquiris, one of the easiest drinks to make. It's My like, favorite. you know, a margarita, but with and rum, pe- essentially. People, and- it's exactly the response. One of my plights is to f- kind of change, tell people what a daiquiri is in mass, because people don't know what a daiquiri is generally. I'm talking about, you know, the mass market. You know, they think a daiquiri is something that it's comes frozen. out of is a frozen comes out of a box, goes into a blender, and then comes into a drink. You know, a frozen drink. <clears throat> and so I always pour daiquiri. You know, it's our signature serve. We think Oni's is great in a lot of drinks, but our go-to is the daiquiri. And I pour we pour it at a lot of events and consumer-facing you know tastings. And people are always like, "What is this? This is delicious! Oh my god!" often get it's like a margarita but with rum actually the daiquiri came before the margarita but we don't need to get so technical uh and it's so easy to replicate at home you can feel like you're having a really awesome cocktail fancy even when it's just rum lime and sugar and you've got an awesome daiquiri and you should be able to order that at every bar you go to and or most anyway and you know i'd love to see the daiquiri being called for eventually the way a martini or manhattan or an old-fashioned it deserves to be and with Oni's, of course. Obviously. What are your What are your Oni's specs? Um, we like two ounce, two ounces of Oni's, three quarters ounce of fresh lime, three quarters of ounce of simple syrup. Okay, that's what I made my husband William make me uh, a daiquiri when we brought the bottle home, and those were exactly his specs. And that's it was awesome. Beautiful. Great minds think alike. Yeah. <laughs> now, and what are what are your goals for the business in five years? What would you love? to see Oni's as in the American spirits world? I would love to see it as the number one premium white rum in in the U.S. from a volume and sales perspective. And so listeners understand what you mean by premium. How much is a bottle of Oni's? Uh, so our um, original is $34.99. It's only available in New York right now um, and online through some of our, if you go to our website, onis.com, there are some ways to get it shipped out of state. Our overproof, same thing, only available in New York right now. Hopefully as we scale, we can get these to more markets, $39.99. And our um, new uh, New York Dominican blend is $27.99. Oh, wow. And that's yeah. available all 50 states? Yes, yes, yes. Again, onis.com. There's a locator. Plug in your, your, your address or wherever you shop and you can find either a bar to drink it in or a liquor store to buy it in. Okay. I mean, and it's all over, it's all over New York City. Ah, uh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think lunch is about ready. Oh, awesome. It smells great. So <laughs> we're going to take a break, pull it out of the oven, and then we'll chat for a second while we eat. Okay, great. All right. Sounds good. Awesome. Lunch is served. Okay, so for lunch today, ladies, we have uh, baked beans, but they're not super sweet, so I'm curious. There's some bacon and ham and um, some of the bean liquid reincorporated with dried mustard and uh, and then a sprinkle of Oni's rum at the end. And then there's a lot of of liquid left at the bottom. We may be good for sopping up bread. And then these tomatoes are... Um, butter, 
Oni's rum, salt, pepper, sugar. I think that's it, and parsley. Do you want one scoop? Okay. You can always have more. So I'm, I'm usually like pretty timid about my first scoop, and then I'm like, oh, this isn't gonna kill anybody. This is great. Is <laughs> that? Uh, I, congratulations on your 500. I'm such an Instagram stalker before these things. Your fifth, 500th uh, bike ride. Today. Yeah. That's insane. <laughs> it's my therapy. It's it actually like throughout starting a business and all like anything in life it really like the relief of working out is helps manage yeah. the stress so yeah that was exciting um do you cook at home at all no i love to eat mm-hmm. I, I one of these days i'll get into cooking <laughs> i feel like if you can learn how to distill rum yeah you probably it's just yeah the time yeah it's just time effort and like if in a small time kitchen effort, yes um I think this works the tomatoes are like su- yeah, I'm always like su- I'm, yeah they're the last ones from the farmers market I was because wor- I never put sugar in things they're not too sweet the juice is really yummy yeah um, yeah tomatoes they're really good mm. and the beans are I mean not sweet baked beans. I don't know. I probably should have put more rum in there is what I'm thinking. It probably... Maybe there's a hint of it. It's very light. It's probably just this one, like, little old lady who submitted a recipe, thought she was being devious. Yeah. She was serving it to all of the Baptists in her hometown. Yeah. And like, oh, and what's your secret <laughs> ingredient? And never told them. Mm-hmm. What a great way to use Oni's, right? Yes. I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's interesting because most of the, like, Things that have been you that people have used to make edible things with Oni's with over the years have been sweets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like put it in a cake, put it in a, right. Sure, things you think like rum goes to immediately. Right. My so it's awesome to see it used differently. My first cooking with rum experience um, was rum cake, and my mom just drove up to a liquor store and went through the drive-in and asked for rum, and so they hand in. She, they gave her a fifth, and she didn't pay attention. They just put it in a bag. And then I was 16 probably, and I was making it, so I didn't know anything about rum. And at the end of it, we realized it was 151. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so that cake was lit. Oh, that's <laughs> hilarious. It was great. <laughs> I don't know what you're waiting for, listeners. Get down to your local package store. Buy a bottle of Oni's. Make a drink. Make a cake. Make a casserole. And keep it creamy.